Hello everyone, my name is Vanessa Menendez Covello and this is the Fresh Needle podcast where I interview fresh graduates and acupuncture students from all over the world and we discuss their experiences as students or running their own clinics, particularly in these very weird times of COVID-19. I want to tell you about an amazing opportunity that is opening up for new graduates who are looking to build their acupuncture practice. Nava Karman is a leading acupuncturist and herbalist specializing in fertility, gynecology, and the immune system. She has run the fertility support company for over 20 years. Nava is launching a new mastermind group exclusively for new graduates. This mastermind group will meet every two weeks to provide mentoring, guidance, and inspiration, and will focus on clinical skills and the practicalities of building a business. This will be a close-knit group of practitioners who will work together for a year to develop the skills and habits required to be clinically effective and financially successful. I recently did a session with Nava, and what I like the most about it is how safe I felt about discussing my fears and worries. I came out of it with a list of very practical, achievable steps to implement change. There are only six places in the group, so you need to apply quickly. Go to www.fertilitysupport.expert forward slash graduate. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is not a new acupuncturist starting his career, but rather one that most of us start our own careers with, as his book, A Manual of Acupuncture, is a reference book for acupuncture students all over the world. Peter Detman has been in the field of health and well-being for over 50 years. He co-founded the cooperative Infinity Foods and the charity Brighton Natural Health Center. He founded the Journal of Chinese Medicine. He set up the Chinese Medicine Forestry Trust to protect forests throughout the world. He has recently written Live Well, Live Long teachings from the Chinese nourishment of life tradition. And he has also released a wildly popular online course in Tai Chi, Shibashi, Qigong. Welcome, Peter. Have I left anything out? Um, that will do now. Yeah. <laughs> because your list of achievements is, you know, it's a long one. How long have you been doing this for now? Uh, when you say this, you mean what exactly? Yes, that's a good question, because I know that you were in general interested in, in, the, in health, in keeping health before you started doing acupuncture. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I had a... Um, I had a health problem my, of my own. I did a lot of hippie traveling when I was much younger and I ended up with a pretty severe case of hepatitis, um, which lingered like a, we, we talk now about COVID, it had a long tail. It took me quite a long time to recover. So I, at that time, I'd already been interested in, uh, you might call Far East Asian ideas and medicine. I was already interested in healthy diet, but um, at that time I kind of turned to uh, a diet that was popular at the time, macrobiotic diet, uh, initially to heal myself, to you know speed up my recovery, and then I became very um, excited about it. I've been looking for years for something to really get my teeth into, um, and had rejected every possibility that came my way, but this really excited me. So fairly quickly with um, somebody that I met, I set up a macrobiotic restaurant and then a food shop. So the first few years of my working career were basically um, in the field of natural foods. 
And then how did that did that lead you directly to acupuncture or was there? Pretty directly. So the uh, one of the things about macrobiotics, you know, I used to go to workshops and seminars and read books and I kept coming across ideas about, you know, Japanese, but really very similar to Chinese ideas about medicine and health and also a little bit of shiatsu. Um, I learned a few of the acupuncture points because of that and looked at pictures of the channels. Um, and then I, um, two things happened really. I got, after several years, I got tired of running a food business. You know, I loved the process of getting it all going and setting it up, but I didn't want to be a, a grocer for the rest of my life. And um, I actually had another health problem. I came back from India with some weird undiagnosable tropical disease. <laughs> so, um, mm. so those two things made me realize I needed to move from the, the natural foods business. And uh, I spent some time anxiously wondering what I was going to do next. And then it, it came as an illumination um, to me one day that I should study acupuncture, and that was partially because of fascination with it, partially because I wanted to help um, heal people, and partially, of course, probably like many people who go into particularly complementary medicine, I was looking for some health answers myself. Yeah, I was thinking actually the other day about how acupuncture is learned today as, as I say, imagine it was then because um, I do a lot of yoga and I remember when I started yoga many, many years ago, it wasn't as popular as it is now. Um, you know, we went to little church halls and, you know, it was difficult to find a yoga mat. So sometimes you just had a towel. Um, well, now you just need to walk five minutes down the road and you can actually get into a training course to become a yoga teacher. And I think in a way, um, acupuncture has become so popular that now there are very well-structured courses, um, very well thought out. And, you know, there's your book that we use for reference. So it's, I'm not going to say it's easy because obviously studying acupuncture is not easy, easy, but I find, I, I wonder what the difference is as to when you had to literally kind of like seek that knowledge, it wasn't that available. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, I'm getting older now. So when I talk about when I was studying, it's quite a long time ago. Um, say, when did I started studying acupuncture in 1975? Um, it's pretty difficult to understand how different it was. I mean, I think at that time there were maybe three books on acupuncture in the English language, and they weren't very good. <laughs> they really weren't very good. Um, there was a little bit of better stuff in French. I sort of half could half read French. Um, when the first book came out from China, and then a, couple, yeah, a few years later, the second book on acupuncture, that was a big event. So... It was very hard to study. Um, the school I studied with, I found very frustrating. I didn't uh, respect the teaching that I was being given. I had the sense all the time that the teachers were doing their best, but 
that mostly meant making things up because they didn't have really much to go on. You know, there's very limited information. Um, and you're right, for me, maybe not for everybody, but for me that made um, good information when I came across it precious, like jewels, like treasure. Um, and the, the first sign of that really was it, it all had pretty much started to happen in the third year of my studies. A colleague, actually one of my teachers, came back from a short course in China. She taught some lectures that I think by that time I'd more or less maybe started the journal, so I published them. I published her notes um, so to spread around the community. They were fantastic. It was just like, it was like water in the desert. Um, mm. Also, at that time, um, we all know, I think everybody knows Ted Capture. Yes, Ted had studied uh, Chinese medicine in Macau, which is the Portuguese colony actually on the Chinese mainland. And so his education was like you would receive in China. He came back to the United States and started doing a comprehensive series of lectures. And as students do, people wrote their notes and printed them up and they just circulated. <laughs> um, so we got copies in England and that was even better. That was, that was the first time that, to me, Chinese medicine started to make sense. I mean, I, before that, it was like, it was like, you know, the story of the blind man, blind man and the elephant. You know that story? You know. Yes. Different blind men and they each grab one part of yeah, the Yeah, and they think that's it. You know, the one grabs the trunk. Oh, the elephant's like a snake. So um, it was pretty hopeless. So this appetite, um, it was like, it was like looking for gold and recognizing it when, for me anyway, when I found it, or when I found what seemed like treasure to me. And that was very much amplified on my first visit to China in 1981 on a tour, on a, a four-month trip organized by Giovanni Machocha. Um, I figure I learned more in four months there than, I don't know, maybe I can't compare it, but it was like, it was like, soaking it up like a sponge. Every word mm. had the ring of, of value and truth, every patient, every needle. Um, and I agree, it's, nowadays it's very different. I think the opposite is true. Students and practitioners are overwhelmed with information. And I yeah. think particularly when you're studying, it's very, very hard. Um, and feels like a burden, perhaps, rather than a joy, because um, it feels like there's too much to learn. I mean, of course, if you look at Western medicine, it's much the same and a thousand times more so, but uh, it is very different now. Yeah. 
Yeah, I find I've been thinking about this a lot um, because, for example, for me, this is kind of my second career. I originally trained as a computer scientist. And at the time, I remember graduating from computer science and thinking I knew everything there was to. And of course, that's because I was young and naive and I didn't realize how bad I was in my first few years as a computer scientist. But I think with that experience now, I've graduated and I'm like, well, you know, I've done well at school, but I still have so much to learn. And the problem is there's so much information and everyone's very opinionated. You have to learn TCM. No, you have to learn Japanese, but, you know, don't you dare do it without the herbs. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I find that sometimes these days students have a proper crisis of confidence because they think I'm just never going to be good enough. I think, I think that's really important. Um, it's actually not just students, it's practitioners, certainly in the first few years of their practice. Um, I think, you know, one could, we could talk at length about it. You know, any one of these things is potentially a very big subject. But one thing I've often felt is that um, Chinese medicine education teachers mislead their students as to... Um, the real uh, quality and benefits of acupuncture. Um, it's very easy to do. I've taught loads and loads and loads and loads. And when the teacher's in love with the subject and in love with acupuncture, it's very easy to give the impression that it is more miraculous than it is. I mean, acupuncture can be miraculous. Mm. We know sometimes quite unexpectedly that's the problem with acupuncture, <laughs> but, you know, you never know. Sometimes you do something and you think, you know, this is a hopeless case. And, you know, a week later they're cured. It's very, you know, it's very odd. Um, but teachers tend to give, give students unrealistic expectations. There is the assumption that, um, you know, we should be able, we should know all about everything that happens to our patients. And even the assumption that we should be able to cure it. I don't know how many teachers out there are saying, look, take a patient with chronic migraine headaches. This is really difficult to cure. You know, if you get a 50% improvement, either in severity or frequency of the headaches, that's better than, better than anything that Western medicine can do. That's a great result. So if you get a patient and they're improved like that, if you know that that is actually a good result, if you're satisfied, pleased, positive about what you're doing. If you have somewhere in the back of your head, oh, if only I was a great doctor, this patient would be cured. They go away and never have a headache again. Now, it could happen, but it's unlikely. So, so the expectation is unrealistic. We judge ourselves against, young practitioners, students judge themselves against unrealistic expectations and feel like failures. And that's a terrible burden to carry. And that, I think, also possibly fuels this eternal desire to go on another course or read another book to find actually the better secret method. You know, if only I learn this one, all these patients who maybe objectively I'm getting quite good results with, maybe they'd all be cured. Um, and then, of course, you know, people either learn a method and start teaching it and they get very excited about it and they tell everybody, this is the only one. You know, 
this is what you ought to, yeah. to learn. Everything else is, is, is rubbish. You know, you've got to learn the mysterious turtle or the classical style or the whatever. So a great deal more. I mean, I'm, I'm actually feeling, this is not a very nice thing to say maybe, at the moment I am feeling a bit negative about our profession. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is because since lockdown, I had more time, all my teaching trips were cancelled, all my travelling was cancelled. Um, so I did spend more time on Facebook. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I know. But, you know, in not looking at pictures of cats, you know, um, in the sort of acupuncture and Chinese medicine discussion rooms. And I was really shocked by how many people in our profession sign up to the wackiest conspiracy theories, you know, have a really ungrounded, give a sense that they know nothing about medicine or the history of medicine or the history of Chinese medicine, um, have little respect for reliable, accurate, well-researched information. And so there's this, you know, there is a, a proportion, maybe it's a small proportion of people in our profession like that, but of course, those people, are, they like to believe in things. So they believe in, you know, this perfect system or that perfect system. And they, you know, they think they know. That's one of the worst things. <laughs> when, people, when people think that, you know, got absolutely 100% definite opinions about everything. I'm at fault with that. I have very strong opinions, but I do recognize their opinions. You know, and I'm willing to change them. There's, there's a lot of really good points there. Um, I know that myself, um, because I trained originally as a computer scientist, and it, in that kind of training, you always have to go into the absolute basics. You go back to the mathematical logic. So, you know, if A means B and B means C, then A means C. Is that right or is that wrong? So I always try to really pair back to the basics in my treatments because also I think if you don't have the basics right then it's really difficult to do the more sophisticated stuff but I have found myself when I'm not having the results I probably naively expect from treating a patient then immediately I think I need to do auricular acupuncture or I need to go on this training so you know you mentioned that and it is kind of like almost like that carrot that you have in front saying, you know, if you if you do this, you're finally going to be good enough. Yeah, and as always, it's the middle way, because I'm not suggesting at all that people should stop training, far from it. You know, I think um, a degree in acupuncture or whatever equivalent is, is clearly just the beginning. And um, we all need to study more. I think sometimes I would say there are better things to study. So, for example, you know, I don't know about your practice, but I, I think probably most acupuncturists would say that they see a high proportion of patients with musculoskeletal diseases and pain. Now, I think in a, a basic acupuncture education is very, very limited in what it teaches about musculoskeletal disorders. You know, an acupuncturist is really in part physical medicine practitioner 
you know, we palpate, we insert needles into muscles and tendons. Yeah, we insert them into channels, but we also work on the physical body. You know, the big argument is acupuncture more akin to highly theoretical for herbal medicine, or is it more akin to really hands-on twina massage? You know, where does it lie on that spectrum? Um, but if we're going to treat musculoskeletal disorders, we should really know about them. The patient comes in with shoulder pain, we should be able to diagnose them. You know, you know, is it frozen shoulder, is it not frozen shoulder? Because that's really important. I mean, the prognosis for frozen shoulder is much worse, much harder than the prognosis for various other kinds of shoulder disorders. So if we know the size of the challenge, I mean, if we have a patient with frozen shoulder and we give them four treatments and they don't get better and we feel disappointed and we feel we've failed, well, we should know that the, the you know, the normal untreated prognosis for frozen shoulder is a year and a half. So there are brilliant courses. I mean, I'm a big fan of Whitfield Reeves, who teaches sports acupuncture. I'm a big fan of Matt Callison, who has brought out a massive textbook on musculoskeletal disorders. I think these would stand acupuncturists often in much greater stead than a lot of the more abstract trainings available. And we also have to remember, of course, that in the age of Google, um, patients know a hell of a lot. And yes. <laughs> you have to know, you know, particularly in certain fields, if you're treating respiratory diseases, if you're treating gynecology, if you're treating infertility, you need to know at least as much as your patient. And you won't have got that from acupuncture college. So I'm a great believer in continuing education, but not when it's driven by fear and anxiety and, you know, this kind of anxious feeling that I don't know enough, I don't know enough, should be driven out of love of learning and curiosity and, and with, as you say, with ultimately what you described, <clears throat> the ABC, that's scientific thinking. Chinese medicine is science, absolutely, absolutely science. Chinese medicine arose, all the great classics, you know, that we look at, the early classics, the Yellow Emperor's classic, for example, that arose at a time as the absolute height of early Chinese science and engineering. And during a period of three or four hundred years, the Chinese discovered um, in all kinds of fields, they made discoveries that were not... Um, discovered in the West till about 1,500 years later because they observed, they carefully observed nature, and that's science. You observe, you come without preconditions. You know, Joseph Needham puts it down to the Taoist approach, which is a non-belief system. It's observing nature and learning. So you don't come with this preconceived idea, this ought to be the answer. You just simply look and see how things work and then you you um, act and you see what the results of the action are. That's basic, you know, you might call it primitive science, but it's scientific method. Yeah, yeah you, you have your hypothesis and then you act on it and then you evaluate the results. And that's actually one of the hardest things for practitioners. It was very hard for me because when I discovered what 
I hate the term, but people call it TCM. I don't like that because it's actually Chinese medicine, broadly. Um, when I discovered it, I was so keen to learn it and I realized there was so much to learn that in my practice for a very long time, I felt that I was doing what I was supposed to do. And rather than subtly different, um, trying what I was supposed to do and just having a very detached scientific observation is, you know, does that, is that being effective? You know, I can't just always do what the books tell me to do. I've got to do something like that. It, it's almost like following um, Krishna's advice to Arjuna. You know, you have to, in a way, detach for the expected results of your actions. Exactly. So you do the action, but you don't have these... Um, emotional attachment to the result that then is going to skew your scientific thinking because you have expectations. That's also very important. I remember one of the great influences on my generation of practitioners was Dr. John Shen, who um, was an absolutely brilliant, probably the, the greatest doctor I've ever encountered. He trained in China, then he moved and practiced in Taiwan, mostly was a herbalist, and then practiced in New York. But um, a friend of mine became a, almost a disciple of his, a student, you know, apprentice. And he talked about how when a patient came back, Dr. Shen would ask them, how, how, you know, how have you been? And if they said, oh, I've been worse, or it's not better, Dr. Shen's approach was, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, uh, that's, you know, that's, I'm sorry for you. Not ever. Oh, I didn't do enough. I didn't do it well enough, you know, just very detached from the result. And of course, if you get too attached to the benefits for the patient, you dig a pit for yourself because then you become very attached to the failure as well so for every good result that makes you feel great every bad result can really undermine your confidence so really what dr shen was modeling like arjuna is i i offer the best i can and then i kind of detach myself from the result of course i want them to get better i want to help them but Many, many things go on in people's life that are nothing to do with what happens in the <laughs> on the acupuncture table. You know, it's not all us. We're not super, super powerful beings. Yeah, and personally, myself, what I found, I mean, I've only been practicing for just a few months. Um, but when I get to that mental stage where I'm really worried or attached to the results, then my chi doesn't flow, it really stops flowing. And then something funny happens energetically where there's kind of a disconnect or I end up absorbing too much of their stuff. And that really, because I know when I've had like in my mind a good practice day is when I come home and I'm relaxed. If I come home from my clinic and I'm wired or tired or stressed, then I know I've not detached well enough. Yeah, and that actually 
raises what I have come to see more and more, a really important question of what we might call practitioner development. I mean, we do have many mysteries in acupuncture. I mean, one of the greatest mysteries, and I don't even really particularly want to start addressing it, is how there are now hundreds of styles of acupuncture, each touted by their followers and believers as offering um, the best results, you know, deep needles, shallow needles, dirty, no dirty, no actual needling, you know, Japanese don't even, five elements, you know, what, you know. Um, and yet they all claim that they work. So we've got a problem here, a logical, logical problem. Do they all work, really? Are they all, do they all work equally? Let's just jump outside that for a moment and look at what we know works. There's one thing we really know, increasingly we know, is how the practitioner is with the patient. We know this because we understand more now about, um, well, I don't want to bring it down to just one thing, but it's illustrative, what we call parasympathetic activation. So if a practitioner is in a, is able to maintain a parasympathetic state, and what that means in practice is just, I don't want to be patronizing, but for people listening, just a quick reminder, you know, the autonomic nervous system has actually, it's very clear, a yang and a yin branch. It's got the sympathetic branch, which is, normally activated at times of stress and danger to respond very quickly. It's called the fight or flight. But it's now understood that people can get stuck in sympathetic state through too much stress, too much fear, too much being on all the time. And it's also characterized by lack of trust, suspicion, inability to rest properly, inability to repair the body, inability to heal, paranoia, post-traumatic stress syndrome, worry, anxiety, and so on. So a lot of people are in that state for far too much of the time. It should be a state we enter when we need to or when we want to, when we want a bit of stress, like we want to go bungee jumping or go and see a horror <laughs> We choose the pleasure of under our own control going into sympathetic state and feeling all that adrenaline and everything. But we need to just be able to slip out of it quickly. Lots of people can't anymore. When we're in parasympathetic state, we're, you know, conventionally called rest, relax, digest, healing state, um, we are open, friendly, human in the best sense, trusting. Um, and when we're in that state, so just give me another minute, I'll, I'll finish up. Um, <laughs> okay. Some really interesting work done by a psychotherapist called Stephen Porges on, um, on the vagus nerve and how, um, you know, I don't know if it's generally accepted, but he says branches of the vagus nerve go to the facial muscles, they go to the ears and they go to the larynx and therefore they affect the facial expression the more than the tone of voice, pretty much everything about the voice. It's called prosody. Uh, so it includes the pace, 
of our voice, how just the feeling that is conveyed when we speak. And our also because of the ears, a kind of ability to listen. So when a practitioner is in that state, they are, what he says is that humans and some of the higher animals, the primates, developed a, an evolutionary defense system beyond fight or flight, which is what you might call cooperation. We sit in human gatherings, now in Britain, no more than six, but generally we sit in human gatherings and we're relaxed because we trust the people around us not to suddenly turn on us to eat us, for example. Like, you know, a bird is always afraid, look at a bird, they're always anxious because they have so many predators. We trust each other more or less most of the time because we can read each other's faces. We can read threat or safety from the facial expression. We can read threat or safety from the voice. We can read threat or safety from the fact that we realize somebody can hear us and is listening to us. This is a very sophisticated development in, in human evolution. So when a practitioner is genuinely in that state, not faked, not putting on a caring voice, but actually feeling frustrated and angry and worrying about their mortgage and so on. This is conveyed to the patient the instant they walk in the room, even actually on a, in a telephone call. And it's basically sending out messages, you can trust me, you can relax. And it could be that some people don't encounter anybody like that in their life. They're not with people who are giving them that message. And the combination of that encounter, which is true healing, or permission to heal, or helping create the conditions to heal, can shift people from a locked-in sympathetic state into a parasympathetic state. And then I might argue that putting needles in, whatever treatment you do, and whatever method you follow, plus looking after the patient and listening to them and asking them intimate personal questions and caring for them and giving them time and allowing them to relax on the couch before you start arguing about, you know, which method of acupuncture. This is really important. This is part of the healing. And that raises the vision of what a, a practitioner is up to quite a high level kind of high level suggested in the Yellow Emperor's Classic. The practitioner is a kind of a sage or is trying, that's the vision they have, is a, a developed person, you know. And that part of practitioner training is developing ourselves to manage our own state. And how we do that, well, you know, there are tried and tested methods. Yoga is your method. Qigong is mine, meditation is another and is also built into yoga and uh, and, and so on. Um, so I don't can't remember quite how I started that digression, but that's my message. Anyway. Oh, detaching from the expectations yeah. probably of the result, that's how it got it. But you know, these... these is really resonating with me because I used to work in a really competitive, really corporate environment. 
And it's always that question of the chicken or the egg. So did I end up working there because I was competitive or did the work make me competitive? So what I didn't realize once I stopped doing that is that it can take a very long time to then to learn to unwind. I still, I still am very young. I still catch myself, even with all the yoga that I do. So, for example, a funny story is I, I, I do have your uh, Qigong course in Udemy, um, which I like very much. But sometimes I find myself, I find myself hoping that you would speed it up, okay. <laughs> which is my internal stuff. Clearly, to me, it tells me that I'm spinning too much. Oh. If that makes sense. No, yes and no. Um, it's one of the big challenges with Qigong is that it's slow. And in fact, the slowest form of Qigong, which is the biggest challenge, especially for people like you, is standing Qigong, where you just stand still. You get into an open, relaxed posture, you slow your breathing, and you stay in the present moment. And really, for a very long time, you encounter, we encounter discomfort. And that discomfort can be physical. It's often, oh, my shoulder hurts, oh, my knees hurt. And it's often emotional. I want to move. You know, I want to stretch. I want to run. You know, there's a lot of yang boiling up inside us, a lot of frustration. And we could really say, you know, that one of the things that's going on is we are discovering where our stagnation lies. You know, we're experiencing it directly. That's also why Qigong is hard for young people. So really, in, you know, in traditional Chinese self-cultivation, young people did martial arts. You know, mm. They did run, they did kick, they did jump, they did all that kind of thing. And they only moved on to the more internal practices once some of the yang fire had died down. So I don't think it's a bad thing um, that you do your Qigong you think, I want it to speed up and, you know, but it means something. It's signifying something, you know, it's showing you something because there's nothing to stop you um, doing Qigong for an hour and then going running a marathon. Well, perhaps not a marathon, that maybe not recommended, but, you know, you can do, go and do all your movement. It's not contradictory. So it's it's kind of really an illustration I suppose, how hard we find it just to be with ourselves. Yes, and I think there was so much of that discovery during lockdown because, again, you know, I live and work in London, which is a very busy town, and suddenly we were all at home. And the fewer people were like, okay, this is great, I'm going to relax, I'm going to be with myself, I'm going to tend to my garden. The majority of the people were like, I'm going to bake bread and then I'm going to move on to chocolate muffins and then I'm going to learn a new language. Yeah. People could not stop even when made to stop. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm a bit torn on that because I like to do and I like to create and I like to make things happen. You know, it's who I am. So, yeah. I mean, one... Um, yeah, I've struggled. You know, I need, I always need a bit of excitement in my life. You know, my normal diary is I travel, I teach, I meet loads of people, 
I love that stimulation, you know, and without it, because it all, you know, everything, it, I sit on my laptop most days and something comes up in my diary that was due to happen, oh, I'm supposed to be in Copenhagen or, <laughs> or you know, I'm supposed to be at a Qigong workshop or something. And the days follow each other and, you know, they're a bit Groundhog Day, you know, Groundhog Day, very important movie. Very, yes, it really, really is. Quite, yeah, it's really what we're talking about, kind of. Um, yeah, and I found it quite, you know, I've had this real challenge. Sometimes I felt, you know, close to depressed when I just felt this lack of external stimulation. Um, but that's all right. I mean, the most, you know, one of the things about self-cultivation, self-cultivation is learning to really like and accept who we are and not try and reach some, you know, manufactured ideal. The true person in the end is somebody who's truly themselves. And if that means that they truly get frustrated and they truly get angry and you just allow it and learn from it and watch it and don't beat yourself up about it because fundamentally you like yourself, But that's the hardest thing. See, Sun Tzu Miao said, seventh century doctor was, is, in China, is called the god of medicine. He was absolutely an integral figure in laying down some really important aspects. He was the Hippocrates of Chinese medicine in the sense that Western doctors take the Hippocratic Oath. Chinese medicine doctors take their ethical foundation from Sun Tzu Miao. You know, he talked about how a doctor should cross a mountain in a blizzard to treat a patient, to treat every patient like no, it's not coming back. a member of their own family. Anyway, he said something very profound. He said the reason people get sick and they don't live long is they don't cherish themselves. They don't love themselves. And the big problem with, you know, I wrote Live Well, Live Long, and it's all about how to lead a healthier and happier life. And you don't, you know, that's just one source the government's telling us all the time to take more exercise and smoke less and eat more fruit and vegetables and pretty much everybody on the planet knows that but most people don't do it that's the big puzzle facing health education however much you tell people things are good for them they don't do them and so you have to think why and one of the answers is actually people don't really love themselves You know, I was going to say that, yeah, to me that really rings very, very true because, um, you know, when you're trying to get someone to, let's say, drink a little bit less and then you inquire into what, why are they drinking so much? And quite often it's because they just literally cannot bear themselves. Yeah. Or most of us are split, you know. Yes, of course we love ourselves. We do want what's good for us. We do. But there is another part, often a hidden part, that... You know, if I speak from a more psychotherapeutic point of view, has absorbed lessons usually in early childhood from parents, from teachers, from those people around who made a really powerful imprint on a child. And somehow they're not worthy, they're not good enough, uh, they should have shame. Um, you know, the way when, when with that awareness, you see the way we treat children, the things we say to them, you know, 
it's terrible really what problems it creates in life you know um and sadly working through those often unconscious messages so that you know we can truly fully accept ourselves and love ourselves and wish ourselves well um and enjoy life to the full that's it's a lifelong process yes i was um raised um roman catholic so <laughs> okay you've got a lot to deal with <laughs> oh my oh god dear. so much shame <laughs> so much shame it's terrible i mean one thing i'm quite passionate about is i i hate belief i think belief leads human beings into terrible terrible problems belief in a religion belief in a guru um belief in a pope or a priest or a you know we've seen how that works in the catholic church <laughs> yeah belief in a guru you know look at the yoga world absolutely written with sexual abuse and emotional abuse um belief in political systems belief in political leaders belief in conspiracy theories you know it's poisonous um and to be free free people i think we need to, as much as possible free ourselves from belief and be philosophers because the essence of a philosopher really is philosophers like scientists you know i have a theory i have an idea about things and i'm just going to carry on observing and if the evidence comes along that tells me that you know my theory is actually not the best then i change it i change my ideas you know that's a true person once we get stuck on a belief i mean how can 40% of americans still want to vote for donald trump how can you possibly how can you possibly explain that unless it's a belief and then the evidence you know you can't appeal to them with evidence it doesn't make any difference because they have a belief you know so as most catholics you can't you know actually maybe it's changing in the catholic church now i left it so <laughs> i don't pick out christianity or catholicism it's the same with muslims it's the same with jews it's the same with hindus even the same with buddhists it shouldn't be but it is so yeah yeah no i got i got almost kicked out of um uh, the preparation for communion because i asked why why couldn't god or jesus have been a woman oh, really? okay. <laughs> yes it, and you know i was like nine years old but or, or anyway. perhaps even more you know the better question is you know um why should god be either a man or a woman you know we don't why should it be human shaped yeah so the dao dao and dao is neither male or female although really interestingly if you had to pin a gender on the dao it's more female than male that's what the dao de ching says it's because it's constantly giving birth to phenomenon and not asking for credit <laughs> i like yeah, that just not being attached to everything it produces you know 
And yeah, if it, Taoism is the Taoism is almost a feminist text. So it's, you know, can you be like the valley, not like the mountain, like the valley? Can you be like water, humble, powerful, but always adopting the lowest position? I don't mean to say women. Maybe the feminine, not the female. It's different. Right. I'm aware that we need to let you go. You're a busy, busy man. But thank you so much. This has been really educational. I've got my own notes of all the people I need to look up now and educate myself. But, well, your website is peterdedman.co.uk. Yeah, so I'm speaking from memory. peterdedman.co.uk. Yes, but they can find you on Amazon, they can find you on Google, they can find you on Udemy for the Qigong course. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Vanessa.